Look alive, sunshine. The question is not when you're gonna stop, but who is gonna stop you. The electric centaur, the democrat, the revolution will not be televised. How's it going, everyone? Welcome to another episode of the Grindhouse Podcast. And this week, I have great pleasure to welcome one of my favorite guests, Mr. Uh, David Andrew L. Venable, who is a young director coming out of uh, Dallas, Texas. And we had a little bit of a sit down to watch the 1993 Joel Schumacher film, Falling Down. So the impetus for us doing a, a retrospective was not just because Joel Schumacher sadly passed away this week at the age of 80 due to cancer, but because an article was shared on Twitter um, sort of taking the opportunity, well, you could even argue maybe exploiting Joel Schumacher's death to make a political comment about um, sharing an article from LA Weekly entitled White People, uh, Michael Douglas's Defense is the Villain. And while I certainly agree, I think that uh, it warranted a review of, of a film like Falling Down warranted a, a little bit more of a nuanced review because I think there's far more layers to this film than just um, the the often quoted white male rage. That, it's apropos that this all sparked from something posted on Twitter because now more than ever, we need to start shifting away from this very binary way of speaking into a language that uses all the nuance and complexity that it offers, uh, especially when it comes to reviewing art. No more is there a better place to apply a deeper level of understanding than artistic endeavors, be they movies or paintings or, or writings. Um, so I, I was really happy to have David on because I think that he really brings an artistic brain to film review. And as a, a creative person himself, he had some really deep insight onto what Joel Schumacher might have been, uh, you know, attempting to convey in his movie Falling Down. It's a movie that is um, somewhat controversial, but um, in the same ways that Fight Club or Joker have been, or American Psycho, which we've talked about as well. But I, I think it's a it's a film that's, in spite of, or maybe because of its, of its controversy, is very relevant with everything that's going on uh, today. So I uh, hope you guys enjoy. Love having David on. Really think you're going to enjoy this episode. And without further notice, here's David L. Venable and myself reviewing Joel Schumacher's Falling Down. So I'd like to welcome someone who has great taste in names. <laughs> Welcoming back to the show once again, Mr. David Andrew Venable. How are you, sir? I'm well. I'm well. See, I... I um, have purposefully started uh, branding myself with the David A.L. because, you know, since I've known you, um, <laughs> there's been, a, and we have a lot of friends in common. There is that. Everyone's, you know. everyone's confused. Yeah, yeah. And I remember um, there was that time where on Facebook you, you officially went back to, you know, having David Andrew. David Andrew. And I genuinely had a moment where I thought, wait, shit, is that me? Like, yeah. <laughs> like, I was like, I don't, I don't remember uh, that being my profile picture, but okay, sure, yeah. Well, what's, what's funny is sometimes I, I will um, Facebook message images mm -hmm. from my laptop. So, like, especially when I do the show, right? Because I'll create an image on Facebook, or uh, sorry, uh, in Photoshop. Yeah. And then I will send the image via Facebook message. Sometimes I do email, but it's just quicker through Messenger, right? I send it to my phone so I can yeah. post it everywhere. I do the same thing. And I nearly send stuff to you all the time. Yep. Yep, I have that and issue a lot. 
Yeah, and part of the reason why I changed my name on Facebook to David Andrews because some people know me as Andrew and some people know me as the people who know me in particular like only through uh, social media know me by my first name. Yeah. And I'm I'm fine answering to either. You know, for for artistic measures outside of film I typically use my first name, right? And and so I just thought, well, just to help clear cuz I've had people say, "What's your name?" <laughs> I'm like, "Well, it's both." Yes. It's my real name. I, I am and, I am all of these things and none of them. Yes. So. Yeah. So welcome. Hopefully we won't have too much confusion. Luckily we do different things. Yes, yes. Wait, just wait till we work together. Oh god. There will be there'll be two David Andrews on one set. Yeah, that'll be good. So, uh, you know, unfortunately this week we had some bad oh, there's, there's tons of bad news of 2020, but the passing of Joel Schumacher, whom I didn't even know had cancer. I didn't either. I didn't even realize. Yeah. He was 80 years old. Such a great filmmaker. Yeah. And a filmmaker whom I feel like doesn't really get the recognition that they deserve, mostly because most people remember him as the guy who put nipples on the bat suit. Yeah. He's, uh, uh, he's, he's always throughout his career walked this fine line of, of camp and high art, you know, he's, he's one of the best at, at doing that. And, um, you know, even even with something like Lost Boys, you know, you've got like some sh- shots in there that are just absolutely gorgeous. But then you've got, you know, everyone remembers it for the dancing saxophone man. You know? Yeah, right. Exactly. And there's there's a layers to, there's layers to his work that I think make it easy for people to miss some of the nuance. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Because, yes, the sexy sax man is great. It's this great image, but does it not like but, but people don't understand that that it um, like for Lost Boys, for example, which I thought about doing a retrospective on because. This show does tend to lean horror, yeah. but um, I just couldn't pass up doing a retrospective on Falling Down because I just feel like it's so relevant. Yeah. But but in Lost Boys, I think that there is a lot of satire into the prepackaged rebellion that is sold back to the youth. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. That is expressed within that film that like you could easily overlook and just take it as a fun romp. Yeah. You know, not to mention that it sort of deconstructs the the vampire genre to some degree. Well, and and I think that you know, Schumacher was a was a was a smart filmmaker, if anything, and he was he's smart in a, in a way that, you know, um, you know, he's not he's not uh, uh, Ingmar Bergman, Andrei Tarkovsky, smart filmmaker. He is smart right. in a way where he is. Um, uh, intelligently approaching a, a topic that other people may not appro- uh, approach intelligently, you know, and he's um, he's smart in the way that he markets things. He's smart in the way that he does these things. He's he's um, um, a brainy Michael Brain, Michael Brain, Michael uh, 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 Michael Bay kind of, you know, sure. where it's that kind of, you know, um, blockbuster filmmaking but with with a reason to do everything like like though even the uh the um nipples on the bat suit like the whole logic behind that makes a lot of sense when he explains it where he's talking about how he wanted these to be um he wanted them to be you know roman statues he wanted them to be yeah. uh uh iconographic you know he wanted them to be representative of of otherworldly almost godly beings which again is is brilliant really when you when you think about it and absolutely it, it reminds me of um 
there's this great video of Nicolas Cage explaining what he, why he behaves the way he does in certain roles, and when he, oh, I've seen it, yeah, and like we, he, he draws reference from the the 1930s French Beauty and the Beast, yes, like the uh, the uh, Jean Cocteau, and uh, yeah, and he he also talks about how his role in um, uh, Vampire's Kiss, which always gets a bunch of people like making fun of it. He draws a comparison between his acting style and that of Max Schreck from Nosferatu. Yeah, German Expressionism is a big influence on him. Yeah, and like, it's it's one of those things where if you just allow the man to explain why he's doing it, you you stop and go, oh wow, that's actually brilliant. You know, it's that same kind of thing I think with with Schumacher, where when you actually start to understand the logic behind it, it's actually quite it's it's quite smart. And you know, while I may not be the biggest fan of some of his work, some of it I, I actually think is brilliant. Like Falling Down, I think is is actually quite quite great. That's uh, a masterpiece. I I actually, so what spawned me thinking about this because you, you touched on something that's super important. I think something we're going to get into is that a lot of Joel Schumacher, in the same way as Nick Cage's work, is so layered. Yeah. And draws from such brilliant influence that it's very easy to only see the surface level of what he's presenting, and overlook like some of the nuance and the details and the and the layers and the complexity of his works i mean people will forget about this but joel schumacher directed several episodes of house of cards for netflix yeah which is totally against what you imagine him to do if you're only visualizing him as uh, the lost boys or the batman movies he actually is able to have some really deep social commentary in his films and uh when he passed Someone on Twitter, which is the worst place on earth, yes, posted. Uh, I think it's time, and I'm paraphrasing. I think it's time to remind everyone of this. And they shared an article from um, April Wolf, who went on to direct the abysmal Black Christmas remake um, from for LA Weekly. That this is from 2017. That uh, essentially summed up falling down. I, the The title of it is. Dear white people or hey white people, a reminder that Michael Douglas is the bad guy in Falling Down. Yeah. And that's right-ish. And I remember I made the mistake of commenting, because it's always a mistake to comment, that in fact capitalism is the bad guy, the main bad guy in Falling Down. Yeah. And of course it starts an argument, because God forbid I go against identity politics. But I decided, I was like, you know what, let's... This, this would be a good movie to go back to because there is a lot of social unrest in the streets, as we all know. Yeah. And uh, 1993's Falling Down came right on the heels of the Rodney King case and, and his, his facing police brutality. And I thought it really captured not only the feeling of the time, but also it still applies to what we're experiencing right now. So I thought this was a, a perfect movie to go back on and look back at and to examine is this just a film of of white male rage as people like to state or is there is there more to this story yeah that joel schumacher was trying to share i would i would say that it's the latter it it kind of reminds me i think you know um uh it reminds me of uh joker in that way and i, I mm-hmm. wasn't i wasn't the biggest fan of of joker i thought that it was um uh, a great film despite everything working against it, you know, like I, I, and I guess, I guess by that, I mean, you know, like, um, uh, I, I thought that it was a, a very well made film, um, with some muddied, uh, 
political identities that it, it didn't quite know where it wanted to be. Um, yeah, I could see that. And, I, and I'd say that, you know, that it actually kind of failed in that sense where falling down actually kind of succeeds, you know, because, Absolutely. Um, you know, with, with Joker, it's it doesn't know if it wants to be kind of on the, you know, the Occupy kind of headspace or if it wants to be because because uh, I, I pointed out with Joker, um, everyone in that movie is an asshole. Every single person in that movie, yeah. aside from even even you know um, uh, Arthur Fleck, is is kind of an asshole. Um, but he's he's the only nice person aside from his his mother, and even she's kind of an asshole because she lied. To, you know what I mean? So there's yeah. no there's it's it's kind of society is entirely against this person. Whereas in Falling Down, it's a series of, of situations that are they're, they're situational not everyone aside from maybe the white supremacist you know shop owner like um not everyone in that movie is an asshole it's just these mild frustrations that build to like it mm-hmm. like you're saying it's, it's a it's a societal thing where you know yeah yeah and i always found the joker to be something of the uh the anti-flag or the green day of political thought yeah like probably has its like its mind's in the right place, yeah. But it doesn't have the deeper understanding to really express what it's trying to say, right? In in a may, in a way that's less. I mean, look, Joker, much like Falling Down, is a very misunderstood film. Yeah. yeah. And there are people who watch Falling Down, just like there were people who watched Joker, and they think I I identify with the protagonist. The protagonist has it right. Yeah, which even is, if they do terrible things, it's it's a it's a that's always a warning sign. There's there's always those memes that say if you're identifying with this person, like you know, you should probably not, you know. And it reminds me, like I always see, you know, like Alex Delarge from A Clockwork Orange is always on that list, and it's like, yeah, bro, bro, don't don't say you want to be like him. Um, no, but but defends, you know, or um, you know. Uh, William Foster, Douglas's character, um, he uh, he is someone who is at least um, somewhat human, you know, and, and that's and that's the same case with you know Arthur Fleck. He's he's pretty human, but um, the 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 reality of defense is is a lot more tangible. It's a lot more real because you know someone like Arthur Fleck, like they hint at at, you know, years and years of, of mental health, uh, struggles, but, you know, uh, with defense, it's, it's literally just, um, uh, it's, it's actually closer to the comic book Joker where he says all it takes is one bad day, you know? That's a great way. That, that's absolutely it. Because, um, I think when you look at a movie like Falling Down, and this is where I think movies like Joker or even Fight Club, um, which are kind of all in the same camp. Yeah. Don't, this is where I think they fall short, where their focus is on the protagonist and they are not quite drawing the same allusions to facets of society. So to me, when I watch Falling Down, uh, their defense represents the middle, the lower middle class. Yeah. You know, as Marx and Engels would describe it as they are the lower middle class. They're the, the petite bourgeois. They're people who have some means of capital, but but they're. When, when uh, you know, if you believe that there is a revolution coming, they will either fall into the realm cleanly of the bourgeois or the working class, depending on their success. Yeah. You know, uh, in the 90s, this would have been called like a middle management. Right. Yeah. And and a hallmark of the lower middle class is the belief that there was a, a ideal time in America 
And if they just follow the rules, then they will be able to achieve this sort of societal nirvana, so to speak. You know, uh, they will be able to get to this level of, of happiness. There's a, um, there's a quote from Fight Club that I think sort of ties into this, where it's uh, the, the Tyler Durden character is talking to um, Jack or Joe, depending on if you read the book or, or you watched the movie, where, where he's saying, um, uh, my father never went to college, so it was really important that I go to college. After college, I called him long distance. I said, now what? My dad didn't know. When I got a job and turned 25, long distance, I said, now what? My dad didn't know. So he said, get married. I'm a 35-year-old boy, and I'm wondering if another woman is really the answer I need. I don't like that last part, but yeah, I, I think the more important aspect of it is the fact that um, there is no answer, really. There is no real meaning towards anything but your promise that if you do these steps if you go to college and you get a good job and you get married and you have a couple kids and this this false reality of the uh, the white picket fence you know yeah that you'll somehow achieve this picturesque viewpoint of america that doesn't exist and maybe in fact i would argue has never existed yeah well and i and i think that that's you know what leads to that rage that this character feels is that is that feeling that you know he's done everything right he's done everything right he's done everything he's supposed to he's followed all the rules and he still will never achieve um the promise you know that the, the promises that have been given to him he's never going to actually get to that point um and and i think that you know you're absolutely right when it it's it's uh promises that are are given to kind of try to satiate desire you know where it's just sort of like yeah. where if you just keep if you keep working if you just keep working and don't think about it and don't you know think about um uh how you're you're slaving your life away you know in this way um uh then you will eventually get that thing well what's that thing well it's it's you know the, the house with the white picket fence it's it's the family right and it's like well now i've got that thing and it's like yes but there's other stuff, you know, there's always other stuff for you, you know, you'll, you'll, you'll figure it out. But right. I mean, it, it will jump around the movie quite a bit, but there's this, there's the, the telling line at the very end of the movie when he's talking to Robert Duvall's character, P- Printergast, Printergast, uh, Printergast, Printergast, Printergast. And he says, they lie to me. And Printergast says, they lie to you. Is this what this is all about? They lie to everyone. They lie to the fish. Yeah. And, and that's that's a concept that is experienced. You see, like in Fight Club, and you see it in Joker, and and really, that's the the central theme of this movie, right? When he leaves his car at the very beginning, when he leaves the rat race, both symbolically and physically, he says, "I'm going home." Yeah. And uh, one of the things about the the petite, uh, petite bourgeois that that Marx talks about is that they tend to be stuck in this false reality of the past. Um, one of the things that Marx considers the petite bourgeois to be politically conservative or reactionary, and reactionary is a term that I'll use a lot, preferring to return to an old, older order, right? This idealistic view of America. The class has been considered by some Marxists to have been the base of fascism in the 20s and the 30s. Doesn't that sound familiar today? Yeah. At other times, when acting in opposition to the interests of large capital, it may be more radical or reformist. This is a, this is a class of people that fundamentally believe, or try to believe until they hit a breaking point that America is good, that all the promises that have been made are correct if you just do enough. 
when the sad reality of it is is that all those promises are in fact empty yeah some people can reach a breaking point and that's what you see in real life as well as in this movie right people who wholeheartedly believed into a myriad of false promises that ultimately like led to an empty life yeah you know what's fascinating is that you know my my father is um around let me i I think he's actually he's yeah my my dad is about eight years younger than michael douglas and therefore i would imagine michael douglas's character but it's been really interesting seeing amidst all of this current civil strife amidst all of this uh 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 civil upheaval um uh, it's been amazing seeing someone who grew up in, in that era of um, if we do what we're told, then things will be okay. He's never he's never fully been like that. You know, he's always been quite progressive. Right. But it's been amazing seeing him um, see video for the first time, really, in his life, uh, in his adult life, really, because he was he was still a child during the uh, civil rights um, movement. Um, seeing video of these police officers who supposedly have grown and changed since the civil rights movement still doing these things you know he's been told his whole life if you do what you're told then you'll be okay if you um if you are peaceful then they will react peacefully and then you know for his son to be you know attacked for for no reason by by cops for uh for these random people um that he happens to know going to a rally and seeing them attacked or even you know the one that really got to him was you know the uh, the older gentleman being pushed down for being peaceful. Um, it, it was it was something that really just uh, affected him in this way where it was kind of like he was realizing, wait a minute, you know these promises, these these uh, these um, uh, these normalities don't exist um, as much as I would think, you know, and he has played the game, so to speak, and, you know, he's, he's been somewhat successful, um, but it's still not that way, you know, it's, I, I guess what I'm getting at is it's amazing to, to hear someone who thought that if you played along, um, things would be fine, to have him then go, none of this is okay, you know, um, all of this stuff that's going on is is horrific. You know, it's not fair for certain people in our society. They're still being treated poorly. Um, it, you know, my my sixty seven year old father is almost like radicalized um, right. amongst all of this. And I think that you know, uh, uh, I, I'm very glad. I guess I could say that he he didn't go the rage route, but is instead this righteous fury. You know, as opposed to defense. Um, I feel like that was a long rambling way to get to my point, but. But it's accurate because, you know, the best uh, villains in a movie think they're the right person. Yeah. They think they're the good guy. And if Michael Douglas's defense represents the, the petite bourgeois, the, middle, the lower middle class, right? Uh, in particular, and this is where I don't, totally, uh, I don't totally disagree with April Wolf's commentary, which is that it, it probably specifically represents white lower middle class. Yeah. Um, today we might call Michael Douglas's character a Karen. Yeah. Right. Or you know, on best case scenario, or uh, you know, one of the, the one of the very many unfortunately mass shooters that we get. Yeah. But they represent people, not just the lower middle class, but the lower middle class that really felt like this was, you know, this idea of manifest destiny that they had conquered the West. Yeah. 
that they had achieved some level of um, utopia and that it's all changing. And you see that in where his rage and his and his anger is refocused, right? It's refocused on the Korean convenience store shop owner. It's focused on the uh, the Mexican gang members who are in the park. The uh, it's focused on the, the fast the, food. Uh, the fast food, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. And which would you know? And he never really stops to think that every until the very end he never really stops to think that it's that there was no such thing as home yeah you know there's a scene where he's in the the korean uh convenience store where he's trying to get changed to make a phone call and he goes into the cooler and he he gets a coke right and i always, i thought it was a really interesting filmmaker choice that we see defense from the perspective of the cooler yeah you know, in the movie, there's a heat wave going on, right? Which obviously is symbolic not only of physical heat, but of the civil unrest, the, the bubbling tensions in Los Angeles in particular at that time and, and still now, right? And for a brief moment, when he looks at a Coca-Cola, what is more Americana than Coca-Cola? Yeah. Right? It's like you see all those ads, all those dreams of 50 cents, you buy a Coke, you know? Yeah. And for a moment, we see him not just... Uh, grab a coke and go but he sits there and he sort of puts the coke to his face he feels the cool air condition there's a brief moment when his tension is absolved for just a moment when he allows himself to go into this sort of past idealistic view of what america is which is also Coca-Cola. tied to consumerism you know it's all 100 yeah uh I, he even refers to himself as a con- he says as my right as a consumer yeah i i and he identifies with that you know, when you were describing the day um, uh, in the in the movie, it's you know considered such a particularly hot day. Um, I, I was thinking about how this would make a fascinating double feature with "Do the Right Thing," like yeah. how the two of them are set in the hottest day of the year. You know, they are um, about bubbling tensions that are you know under the surface. I will say, you know, of course, uh, Spike Lee approaches it with much more. There's, there's, this is a somewhat loving community, and under the surface, there right. is, uh, there is that tension. Um, whereas, you know, in the case of Falling Down, it is things are barely held on, and it's of course very different um, viewpoints, you know, and, and approaches. Um, but I think that it would be, you know, very interesting to see these two things, you know, back to back to kind of compare and contrast. Yeah. I mean, honestly, you could, I mean, I know, I know do the right thing is set in New York, but you could almost imagine that those two stories are happening simultaneously. Yeah. Yeah. That, um, the dust and the darkness and the overclouding in falling down is not just smog, but in fact, the, the smoke from, from riots and upheaval yeah. that were most likely occurring at the time of filming. Well, and, and as you mentioned, you know, um, uh, falling down was filmed after, uh, the Rodney King riots, which you have to wonder, um, about his particular choices, you know, having Korean grocers, you know, when that was, you know, such a large uh, part of the riots was Korean grocers um, who were defending their shop fronts, you know, and, mm-hmm. and things along those lines. So, you know, again, Schumacher is a, a smart filmmaker who had a reason to do these things the way that he did. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, I mean, of course, you know, Do the Right Thing is set was it three years before? Um, I think so. Yeah, uh, I think it's three years prior to both falling down and the Rodney King riots. But 
which is so sad when you I just recently watched that movie again and just how many of those things in that movie just pop back up. But anyway. Yeah, it's still relevant today. Yeah. No, I, I think that, you know, um, Falling Down does a really good job of, of exploring um, a particular uh, socioeconomic class and how they approach that. Like, like again, you know, when you, when you, officially, when you originally called them, you know, him so, somewhat of a Karen, I, I was thinking, well, you know, um, except his, his, uh, he's a likable character. And then I was thinking, you know, well, actually a lot of his behavior really is that kind of carrot, like, like the, uh, fast food behavior, you know? Yeah. Um, you know, when I first watched this movie, I was probably 14, 15. And I remember thinking at the time, uh, that is completely reasonable, so to speak. You know, I, I, I've been that angry before about just a yeah. small inconvenience. Um, and then, you know, later in life, I've worked fast food. I've worked, you know, um, food jobs in, in general. I've worked, uh, I, I've worked retail. And it completely switches your view of that scene, you know. Um, and yes, yeah. while the actors in that scene are kind of trying to be obnoxious to kind of support his viewpoint... At least the manager. The, the, yeah. the lady who first yeah, she, handles him is, she kind of just is what it is. She's just, you know, she's yeah. just a young person working at fast food. But that manager, he is, he's a parody of, you know, the, the obnoxious manager type. But like, um, you know, when you... Well, because he's petite bourgeois himself. Exactly, exactly. You know? Um, so when you, when you watch that scene, you know, later on in life, you, you really realize just how unbearable... Um, his behavior is because it's like, look, mm-hmm. sir, I have nothing to do with with this policy. I'm just enforcing it um, again because he's yeah. middle. He's the middle management type, you know. He's just right. doing what he's told. But he is a total Karen, where he's, you know, um, he's just uh, completely unhinged in that scene. And and it's interesting, you know. Um, you mentioned the the mass shooter type, and I, I was thinking back to Michael Moore's Bowling for Columbine, where there's a great interview with Marilyn Manson, where it's, mm-hmm. it's one of my favorite quotes um, regarding um, those individuals and also, you know, Marilyn Manson, uh, where Michael Moore says, if you could ask those boys anything, what would you say? And he said, I wouldn't say anything. I would listen to them because that's what no one else did. Yeah, right. And, and I think that, you know... If anything, you could look at this portrayal as a portrayal of, you know, white male rage for sure. But you could also look at it as as uh, not just like toxic masculinity, but male fragility and yeah. and that need to, you know, um, toxic masculinity in the sense that he needed to be strong. So he has this outlet of of rage where instead of talking, you know, there's there's a lot of jokes right now where it's, you know, stuff like. If, if a guy had just simply gone to therapy, you know, something along those lines. Sure, right. Um, yeah, that's like the cure-all, right? Yeah. Like, let's not change society that creates these monsters or these people. Like, let's just put them in therapy or let's cancel them and let's just put them in a corner. You know, people, especially like progressives and neolibs and what have you, they treat, they treat people who are angry. Yeah. Or who are quote unquote problematic, in the same way that governments treat the homeless. Yeah. Just shove them into a corner where we don't have to see them. Yeah. Right. We don't have to deal with them. We don't have to uh, ever encounter them. There's a line actually in the movie where, um, oh, you know what? It's when he's dealing with the Mexican gang members. Yeah. And they're like, "This is our land, right? This 
fucking piece of shit hill. Yeah. That's all they have. And he says, and he can actually, in that moment, he can identify with them because he says, I, this is your backyard. I wouldn't want you in my backyard. Yeah. Right. He's okay. He understands this false idea of ownership. And this, in fact, there's several times when characters talk about ownership of stuff they don't really own. Yeah. Right. The Mexican gang members don't really own that hill. The homeless guy at the park doesn't really own that park. Yeah. You know, but there's this idea of this false ownership of this stuff that we don't really own. Yeah. Right. And and to understand why defense focuses his anger on everything but the real problem. Korean people own convenience stores. Um, you know, the, his idea that like. You know, the, the, it's it's a widely held sort of. You see this in the middle class that all poor people are faking it, right? Homeless people are faking it. You know, you always heard those urban legends. You know, yeah. I think it's important to see what the other characters represent, right? What are, what are they symbolic for? If if defense symbolizes not only the petite bourgeois, the the lower middle class, but but in largely speaking, the the white white middle class, right? Um. You know, I think that you have to look at Prendergast and what does he represent? Yep. You know, like he's presented as um, this movie does sort of present the police still as kind of quote unquote, at least at least Robert Duvall's character as sort of the, the good guys. Right. But I would argue that Robert Duvall's Prendergast is also the petite bourgeois. Oh, for sure. And he's, if anything, but, someone who's mm-hmm. sorry. Um, no, go ahead. He, he, he's, if anything, someone who is. Um, uh a, an enforcer um, uh, of of that of that class, and he is someone who he's only brought to question it. I think after his interaction with defense, you know, um, yeah, uh, because you know, there's that whole interaction in the end where basically, you know, um, defense commits spoiler alert for those who are listening. Um, uh, he commits suicide by cop, you know, um, essentially where he has the the fake gun, and I think that it's one of those things yeah. where. You know, um, there's some introspection committed by uh, Prendergast. Or Prendig- they put an R in there, you know? They put an R yeah, in there. Yeah, no, it un- totally throws you off. Yeah. Duvall's character. Yeah. Offense. Yes, that's good. That's good. Um, <laughs> but, um, you know, there's some, there's some introspection there. And I think that, you know, this entire time, you know, uh, it's at least alluded to that Duvall is, is so unnerved by, by Douglas because he is seeing someone that is so such a potential reality you know well not only that but if you look at his if you look at robert duvall's character arc he is a character that is totally emasculated throughout the entire film yep his wife you know tears him down his co-workers in the police force don't respect him his boss doesn't respect him and over the course of it he eventually quote unquote stands up for himself he stands his ground he shouts down his wife he shouts at his boss he punches the jerk um, uh, co-worker that he has but in a lot of ways obviously it's far less violent right yeah he's not shooting up or blowing up Los Angeles but his his character arc in very many ways matches that of defense yeah just less extreme and I think that what that represents is the vast majority of the uh, the petite bourgeois the lower middle class and in fact the very the very t- type of people who would espouse that defense is simply a matter of white male rage yeah. 
are Pendergast. Because much like defense, they blame all the problems on this one individual that they don't understand. Yeah. You know, Michael Douglas blames every other ethnicity, every other person, everyone but him, everyone but looks like him. Yep. You notice that the only other character that he ever really empathizes with is the black man who's shouting about being, um, what was the terminology that they use? Economically viable. He's no longer economically viable. Yeah. You know? But unlike the black man who's immediately arrested for just complaining, right? Yeah. While on some level Michael Douglas can empathize with him, he's in no danger himself of any real... Like, he, you know, he's walking freely on the streets, whereas as when, when the African-American community expresses its outrage, they're immediately shut down by the police. Yep. And Michael Douglas is able to walk through the city with, with a bag full of guns. And that really shows us the difference. You know, they're both, they both are experiencing this exact same kind of rage. Well, it, it reminds me of, you know, um, uh, it's been brought up a lot how, you know, someone like you know George Floyd um a lot of let's just you know cut to the chase call them white supremacists even though they may not think they are the people who say things like um uh you know well George Floyd committed a crime or something along those lines or you know even when that was the case with Michael Brown you know um and then you look at someone like Dylan Roof you know who was a white nationalist who shot up a church and they stopped to get him Burger King you know um right. and it, it really is that that thing where it's you know um i i don't want to get into the psychology of someone like dylan roof because i think it's not worth it but i think that you know um uh when you explore this this deep-seated frustration and rage you know um uh within you know everyone that's going on as you mentioned it's a societal it's a it's a it's a capitalism issue um, only, only some people, um, suffer, uh, the repercussions of the anger associated with it, you know? Right. Um, there's actually, you know, I was, I was wondering if I could actually read this great Roger Ebert quote about the movie that I, I think is absolutely exactly what we're talking about. And I, and I've always been a fan of Ebert. I think he gets some stuff wrong, um, every once sure, in a while. Everyone does. Yeah. But I think that, you know, there's a reason that he's one of the few if, if if i think he may still be the only film reviewer still to this day uh who won a um i think it was a was it a peabody that he won um uh, i'm not i'm not 100 sure um but yeah here's here's his take on on um on falling down some will even find it racist because the targets of the film's heroes are african-american latino and korean with a few whites thrown in for balance both of these approaches represent a facile reading of the film which is actually about a great sadness which turns into madness and which can afflict anyone who is told after many years of hard work that he is unnecessary and irrelevant. What is fascinating about the Douglas character as written and played is the core sadness of his soul. And I think that that is just yeah. exactly what we're talking about, you know? Yeah, exactly. Because again, you know, to chuck this up to just quote-unquote white male rage, which always is sort of presented as it springs from nothingness other than your own privilege, which is partially true yeah there this is why the the, the african-american character is introduced because it's not just michael douglas who is expressing this rage yeah you know in current america automation you know and covid are going to sh quickly prove that many people are not 
economically viable. Even that, even that terminology, that soft language, that soulless, sterile language that was applied to something, which is basically that you no longer matter yep. in our system. You are, you have been used and chewed up, like a, a boxer from Animal Farm, right? Once you've built the windmill, you're off to the fucking glue factory. Yep. It, it is a real frustration that is being expressed throughout all society. But when you mix that with the privilege and the expectation of so much of white America, who oftentimes blames everyone but them, but the system itself or themselves as being the problem. Yeah. If we could just get rid of the Koreans, if we could just get rid of the Mexicans, if we could just get rid of the, the whatever, Muslims nowadays, I guess that was less of a thing then. But like, if we could just get rid of everyone who doesn't look like me, then life will, answer, will, will fulfill the promises that it presented to me. And we will go back to this magical time. I think when he's like rolling back the, the, rolling back the prices yeah. in the convenience store, he says, I'm going to go back to 1965 prices. Yeah. As though like 1965 somehow holds this magical time in his life. Even his appearance with the buzz cut and the yep. the shirt, you know, he he's trying to present himself like those uh, scientists from Apollo 13, you know, like the NASA people, that golden age when he felt he probably, as a young person, aimed to be part of NASA and found himself making missiles. Well, that's actually, you know. Um that was again. It's a great example of of Schumacher making a very smart decision and doing so in a way that's both subtle and overt. You know, with the it, it worked a little bit better than the nipples on the bat suit. But you know, there's right. there's a quote um, again. You know, where um, uh, Douglas commented on how it helped him get into the character of a veteran or the, of the military or defense industry. Quote. It gave me the feeling of the late 50s and the early 60s. And somehow my character, you kind of have the feeling that he came from another time or he wished or he hoped for another time when he when things made sense. Uh, right. Which never existed. Exactly. And and to, to, to jump forward a little bit, there's a scene when he gets to his he finally gets to his wife's house, whom I want to talk about. And he starts watching old home videos. And they in the beginning, they start out idealistic. Yep. But as the video continues to go, you realize that things were never good. Yeah. This imagined time where everything, quote-unquote, made sense never existed because this character was always a shitbag. Yeah. He was always had this bubbling anger underneath him. And one thing that parallels between Pendergast and defense is the, the mental illness that is impacting their life. Yeah. When you meet defense's mother, it's very evident that there is some mental illness applied there. Yeah. That perhaps he himself has and has never addressed, right? But a lot less touched on is, is Pendergrass's wife, who also seems to suffer from some form of mental illness. And it's, it's very subtly, it's even almost easy to miss, insinuated that she maybe has some prolonged postpartum depression Yeah, and that she killed their kid because he says that his daughter just one day didn't wake up. She had basically had a sudden infant death syndrome. The exception is that she was two years old. Yeah. So I took that to in infer that perhaps his wife suffocated the child in the middle of the night. And it's not addressed. In both instances, mental illness is just never addressed. Yeah. It's kept at home, right? It's kept quiet. It's hidden from the world. It's never expressed or dealt with. 
it just exists in the far corners represented by both Defense's mom and Pendergrass's wife. Which I think is why, you know, this film is something of more of a success than something like Joker, where Joker is so overt about its mental illness. Very on the nose. Yeah, and it's, and it's something that it's always bothered me, you know. Uh, you and I have, have talked even before this call about, you know, some of my struggles with mental health stuff. And it's always been a, a, an annoyance of mine when a, a film turns to relying upon that um, for the explanation of its character's behavior. Um, right. You know, especially, you know, um, you know, Arthur Fleck and Joker is is obviously suffering from some kind of schizoaffective disorder and you know um the vast 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 majority of people who suffer from schizoaffective disorders who are involved in some sort of criminal behavior are the victims of that behavior um and so the idea of turning it into something where it's like well that explains why he's crazy it's the same thing that always frustrates me when people make the uh the comment about um uh, school shooters or mass shooters or something where they say this person's this person's obviously mentally ill obviously there's something wrong with them yes yes but to say that it's a it's a matter of mental illness um, exclusively and not a societal problem and not you know um, a problem of you know all these things crashing down on people who are susceptible to it it's 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 not completely accurate it's again when people who are suffering from mental illness it's not it's not um, it's not often the case that they are the people who execute acts of mass violence or, or right. things along those lines. So, you know, they're, they're, what I like about this movie is, again, like, you know, like you were saying, it discusses those things. Like, again, like a school shooter or like a mass shooter, there is something at play here, for sure. Mm-hmm. For a person to be a sociopath to that extent or a psychopath, obviously there's something going on within their me- mental faculties. But... That is not the biggest issue in falling down. That is not... No. That is not... It's, it's a symptom of the larger problem. Exactly. Exactly. Um, and, and, I, and I really appreciate that about it, you know, as opposed to, you know, Joker where he's like, I'm going to just stop taking my meds. And I'm just like, bro, no. Yeah. Well, not only that, but like, but like that's why to me I take issue when, when, when uh, very shallow thinking people just chalk it up to white male rage or mental illness or the Koreans or the Mexicans or the whatever. Yeah. Right? Because it's the same line of thinking. It's like this isolationist thought process that just says, like, we're going to put you over here in the monster bubble. Yeah. And we're never going to examine the contributing societal factors that we all contribute to, that we are a part of, that have bred people who are in some instances can be ticking time bombs. Yep. Right? Defense's view of the world is the reason things are wrong is because you're different than me. Yep. People, smooth brains who say this is just white male rage without a deeper understanding of how society contributes to that are doing the same thing. That's what I think Pendergast does because he always says, what were you planning on doing? He's like, I don't know. He's like, no, nah, people like you always know. People like you. Yeah. Right? How often have we heard that term? You people. Yeah. And that is where... I think that that's where some of the brilliance of this is because if Pendergrass represents the petite bourgeois that's non-psychopathic, that is in fact um, almost, if not willingly, sort of uh, has has surrendered to the boot of capitalism. Right. And defense represents the building, explosive, dangerous energy that is that that some people in that society become ticking time bombs for 
I think that um, defense's wife represents the proletariat. Yeah. It's the average person. It's the person who is at most at danger from someone like a defense. Yeah. Right? And she goes to the police, and because he never beat her physically, they seem to have no interest in it, really. Yeah. They don't, they're ineffective. They protect her in no manner whatsoever. Which I, right? I think that that's, you know, I, I just had this conversation with my father recently um, about, you know, there's a lot of stuff going on um, online with um, women coming out about their uh, abusers online and they're using, you know, the online forums to do so because, you know, they do go to the police and that's exactly what happens where it's that kind of, you Nothing know, happens, it, right? Exactly. Um, and, you know, I was talking to my dad about that and how it kind of overlaps with, you know, women going to their doctors and saying, you know, I've been feeling sick. And, you know, the doctor says, well, it's probably nothing. And then it ends up being that they've had, you know, like a, we were talking about Gilda Radner uh, from Saturday Night Live, the first season, first couple of mm-hmm. seasons. And that's something that happened to her as she talked to a doctor about how she'd been in pain. And then years later, they were like, oh, you had ovarian cancer this whole time. Um, right. And it's and it's which they never found. Yeah. They, they, they ended up finding it like, you know, when it was too late, you know, but like. Sure. Um, but that's it's it's um, it's interesting how, you know, you can tie in this this uh, recurring problem of, of women talking about their problems, but it being something that, you know, unless it's so very overt, you know, um, and so right. very open and, and, and obvious that it's it's not worth mentioning or pursuing or something along those lines. And I think, you know, again, you know, she goes to the cops and says, this guy's a problem. And, you know, just gets not necessarily laughed out of the uh, precincts, but, you know, just kind of... She's not taken seriously. Exactly, exactly. Which, again, is a, is a piece of commentary that is actually quite subtly brilliant, which I honestly didn't think about until, you know, this conversation. Yeah, I mean, look, she 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 obviously on the surface represents exactly what most women go through. Yeah. When they're fearful of a, a man, an ex, someone who never physically I see this all the time. People who who never physically attack someone, but their their aggressiveness and their threatening nature they, and you know, they they their partners can feel that they're just under the surface is a violent act just one bad day yeah. away from occurring. And they're not taken seriously, and they're not protected. And then, and then beyond that, again, on a deeper level, how many people who live in society who are in constant fear of this violence erupting and the police, which represent the sort of uh, the order, the structure, yeah. does nothing, right? They do nothing to protect us from these ticking time bombs that are just one bad day away from exploding. Yep. In fact... And oftentimes they are the time bombs. Yep. You know, the police, as we've, if we've, if we've learned nothing, it's that the police often attract these defense type people, these people who believe that, that bought into the system, that bought into the lies that they were told. And then they, um, you know, they, the problem is, uh, the black community, the problem is whatever it may be, right. Women asked for it, whatever, et cetera. And they're inefficient. At worst, at best, they're inefficient. At worst, the perpetrators of the violence that is bred in a, in, a, in, a, in a, a society that is whose promises are hollow and unfulfilling and in many ways damning. I saw a really, you know, on this topic exactly, uh, a really both funny and disturbing uh, Onion headline that was... Um, 
uh, uh, raise in crime expected now that police or raise in violent crime expected now that police officers have no outlet. Uh, I saw that. Yeah, <laughs> and um, and then right next to it there was a um, article. You know, it was showing how the Onion has basically become real now. That was talking about how there was a rise in violent crime committed by officers who no longer had this outlet. Um, yeah, and it, it really is something where you know um, these these people who are supposed to be protecting us. You know, they have become the very thing that they say that we need to be afraid of you know um they are the and they're mm-hmm. go ahead they they are the you know bubbling rage underneath the surface you know well and how much do the police represent that false promise right this idea that the police used to protect and serve is not true look at the civil rights movement look at the atrocities the police did look throughout history this ideological idea that the police at one point were the good guys. And if we could just get rid of these a few bad apples, that we'll return to a greater time. And I think that right? that's exactly why I mentioned my, my father earlier, is that you know he was of that belief where that few bad apples thing. And then throughout this entire um, sequence of events, he has really come to really see how not true that that. Uh, mindset is you know where he's just like wow this entire institution is flawed this entire system is flawed and it's systemic in a way that you know needs to be addressed um yeah i mean you you know there's um there's there's the you know in the movie in spite of all the violence that occurs defense only kills one person and that's the nazi right and it really i had a conversation very recently about with a with a, a friend of mine who was like, um, he was kind of not really defending the Boogaloo boys, but he was kind of making the argument that the Boogaloo boys, whatever the fuck they're called, were not wholly bad, you know? And that they, um, that there are bad people within it, but that they largely are just uh, Second Amendment activists, blah, 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 blah. And that some were on the side of Black Lives Matters, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And that, that may be true. But to me, people like the Boogaloo boys or people like... Um, uh, the Proud Boys or any of those other boys, Choir Boys, Jersey Boys, they uh, they represent defense. They don't view themselves as Nazis. They don't think that they're like that character who owns the, the, the surplus store. They think that they're Americans, right? But when you realize, when you really think about the what both the neo-Nazi and defense want, what their ultimate end goals are, and, and to some lesser degree, Pendergrast. When you think about what all three of these men want, what they're longing for, it's the same it's the same goal. In in further and further extremes, right? It is the same goal of a time past that was somehow more ideal than the time current. It's the illusion of the American dream. To quote George Carlin, they call it the American dream because you have to be asleep to believe it. And these people really represent um, lo- a longing for a time that and a promise that will never ever be fulfilled, you know, whether or not it goes into a full born hate or it just becomes uh, obedience. In the case of like Pendergrass, they represent. There are t- the answers to the question, and this is why I have issue with it. Is like there are multiple villains in this movie, and and in fact, the only two characters that I would say are not the villain. Our defense's wife and his daughter. Yep. And that's... Which represent the, the rest of us. And she is, you know, 
the daughter is such an innocent, you know? Um, and I think that, you know, even, you know, someone as obviously idiotic and, and shitty as like Richard Spencer, you know, like he says things like, you know, I'm not a, I'm not a Nazi. I'm a, I'm a patriot, you know, like that kind of, right. you know, doesn't that sound like defense? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Even, even kind of dressed the same, right? Exactly. Like that sort of throwback to, you know, the, the a throwback to a, a, an aesthetic that is a throwback to an era that they view as better than the current era. Right. Exactly. And that's, and that's the thing is that, you know, um, it's also been very interesting hearing my dad, uh, talk about, um, uh, underlying racism you know that has to do with that um that viewpoint of of there being a better time you know my my dad made a a point where he was saying you know surprisingly progressive given you know his his generation where he was talking about how um he believes that those who say things like uh you know well i'm not i'm not racist you know i'm you know i i don't see color like that kind of thing or, yeah. or, you know, I just, I just think that things should be like they used to. He's like, well, the thing that people need to realize is that, like, every, everyone has these problems that they need to work through, and they need to acknowledge that the past was complicit in those things, you know? Like, we need to acknowledge that. Sure. Um, that and that longing for that past is, is kind of wanting uh, a return to that complicity. And the, yeah, they're the Pendergast. Yep, right? exactly. They're appalled... They're appalled by the actions of defense, yep. who himself is appalled by the actions of the neo-Nazi. Yep. And at no point do the, all three of these groups realize that they are, in fact, just different sides of the same coin. Exactly. You know, along there, they may be in different situations of violence. They may be in different positions in how they are reacting. Right. Certainly. But they are all sort of share a common ideologically occur. Uh, 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 um, they all share a similar ideology, and it's, which is that there's a return to a better time if X, Y, and Z could occur. Exactly. And it's, it's, it's really, you know, we're seeing that a lot nowadays with people who say things like, you know, um, uh, you know, I'm, I'm no Nazi or I'm, I'm not a racist, but these, these people need to, you know, stop doing blank or they need to, you know, if, if they had just followed the rules, if they had just done this and it's that same you know, you'll see those people um, kind of, like you were saying, in this tier where, you know, there's people who are just sort of like, you know, well, if they get in front of my car, I'll run them over, you know? And it's that same kind of thing where it's like, that is an act of violent white supremacy, you know? That is an act of yeah. of, of violent um, uh, of violent racism, but they don't see themselves as, as violent racists. They just see themselves as someone who's, whose day has been interrupted and therefore they are annoyed. And they don't see it as their day has been interrupted because of a, an ex, uh, a exploration of, of, of civil um, unrest and civil mistreatment. They just say... Right, and I don't... Yeah, go ahead. They just, they just you know, um, they don't see themselves as the extreme, you know? That's right. And I don't want to limit this strictly to white people because, again, I think that's falling into the very trap that this movie is trying to um, warn against because there are plenty of people. Like, there was a video that was shared, and it was a, it was a, it was a Hispanic man who was uh, – he had a chainsaw. Did you see this? I did see that. Like, during the pro- – yeah. yeah. You know, there's this idea that somehow that this is just this rage. This is why I hate that term white male rage, right? Yeah. Because it's so condescending. It's so arrogant. Um it's this idea that it only exists in white America, and it doesn't. No. You mentioned do the right thing. That rage exists in all communities. Sometimes it erupts in violence. Yeah. Right. How many people did you see during the during the uh, protest 
where uh, people were like, oh, we're for the protesters, but we can't stand these looters. Right. Right. That's where you draw the line. Right. Right. As long as you're civil. It's just like with the presidents. Right. People are against Trump for valid reasons. But they're like they really do believe that they can just get Trump out of office. This person who represents uh, an incivility and they get someone in who's more like Obama, for example, yep. who does atrocities, but in a nice way. He's polite. He says the right thing. Yeah. Right. He follows the rules. Yep. So even though he's contributing to the very system that that breeds this this violent uh, rage that exists within lots of different types of people. Karens, white male rage, black rage, Mexican rage, Asian rage, rage everywhere, right? They long for the time that was better. Yep. They want to they wanna get Trump out of office so that they can go back to brunch. Yep. Right? If Hillary had won, if Clinton had won, we'd all be at brunch right now. This is These are the Pendergast of society. They are the people who are not so dis- distant, different than the Proud Boys. In that they just think that if it could just get back to this thing, that everything will be fine again. And it's all an illusion. The saddest part is there's a scene. We mentioned your, you mentioned his daughter. And uh, Defense's wife asks Robert Duvall's character, you know, um, it's her birthday. And all these little kids start showing up, right? Her father's just been murdered, you know, suicide by cop. And he says, let her enjoy the birthday party. You can tell her tomorrow. The illusion continues, right? Her father was just murdered. Don't have a fucking birthday party. Explain to her what's happened. But the but see Pendergrast, who represents the the percentage, which I probably is the largest percentage of the petit bourgeois who pretends like everything is fine or who just puts it off or just ignores it. He perpetuates the illusion. Just pretend everything is fine. If you just pretend everything is fine, if you just go to brunch and you and you ignore all the atrocities that happen around us all the time, even under the veil of civility that we all long for, that you can deal with it later. You have been listening to part one of my conversation with David Andrew L. Venable regarding the film 1993's Falling Down, directed by Joel Schumacher, who sadly passed away this week. This was such an interesting conversation that we went nearly two hours, and I just felt like um, rather than hack out really important parts of the conversation, we would do something a little bit different that I'm not sure we've done too much on this show, and that's uh, do this as a two-parter. So, hope you guys have enjoyed what you've heard so far. We'll be back at the same bat channel, same bat time next week, finishing our discussion with Joel Schumacher's Falling Down, as well as answering your audience questions. Thank you guys once again for listening to the Grindhouse Podcast. We'll be back next week. Adios. You're listening to the Grindhouse Podcast on the Fall of the Petite Bourgeois Network. Please follow us on Instagram at Grindhouse Podcast and listen to us every Monday on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Spotify. 